My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors of City Light Church. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Uh, we're going to dip into chapter 2 to pull up just a few verses, get us going uh, where we're at today, uh, but we will be there only a minute. So this fall, we're taking a look at the story of Exodus. This is God's divine epic ransom a mission to come through the person of Moses to redeem his people who had been enslaved uh, in the enemy nation of Egypt. And I want you to know that this picture is a foreshadowing and a foretelling of God's greater rescue mission that would ultimately come to fruition in the person of work of, of Jesus. We see in here a pattern that God sends the one to save the many. God sends the one to save those who cannot save themselves. It is a picture of the gospel. We're going to get to that at the end, but I want you to see that thread throughout the entire story, Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, But this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at how this particular rescue mission gets started with the calling of the man Moses. Okay, so today we're going to be in a transition as we go from chapter 2 into chapter 3. In chapter 2, um, the chapter ends with the, with the cry of God's people. They're crying out to God. God, save us from our slavery. It says God hears their cries. And how does God answer their cries? He answers their cries with the calling of Moses. In fact, we see this quite often. The normative way that God works in the world is that he works through people. The cries of some are answered by the calling of other people. I want you to think about that for a minute. God's primary work in the world is always done through his people. On occasion, God will send a a theophany. He will come and appear. He will send an angel. He will send an earthquake. There will be a divine, um, supernatural appearance. But the primary, the normative way that God works through the world is, is through his people. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, he sends Moses to deliver them out of slavery. And when the spies went into the promised land and there was trouble, God sends Rahab to hide and protect the spies. God sends Gideon, the unlikely, to go and, and rescue God's people from the Midianites. God uses David, a person, to slay the Philistine giant and lead God's people. God uses the apostle Paul, a man, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and plant churches throughout the known world. God uses um, Philip to preach the gospel to an Ethiopian who then takes the gospel to a whole new continent of Africa. God uses Lydia to host and underwrite and fund the planting of one of the most important uh, churches in the New Testament, the church in Macedonia. God primarily works in the world through the work of his people. In City Light, today, God's primary work in the world is done through his people, the local church. I want you to know that God still answers the cries of some with the calling of others. And so um, we are, as a church, God's mission department to the world. How does God, what is God doing in the world? How is he sending forth light? How is he building his kingdom? He's doing it through the local church. He is doing it through his people. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, God has called you into ministry. God calls us first to salvation, and he then calls us to serve the God of our salvation. And the invitation for us to, is to experience God's work in us. We give him our sins when we place our faith in him. He gives to us righteousness that he earned through Jesus. He gives to us forgiveness, eternal life, and hope. He gives to us his Holy Spirit, and he empowers us with his mission and ministry to the world. And I want you to know this is good news. This is not God's um, arduous burden on the lives of his people, the religious mandate that we must live out um, his orders. That's God's good gift 
that he would invite us into a purpose that's greater than ourselves, out of the mundane, out of the worldly, and says, now I want you to invest your life in the things of eternity. God works through us. We are called. Now listen to this. God does not need us, okay? There's a very important distinction here. God is God. He does not need man. Scripture said that God is not served by human hands, but God chooses to use us as a good gift to us. And so listen, listen to this. If, if, if City Light gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but Omaha does not get better and better and better, we're not doing our job, church. Can I just say that? I want you to know the goal of City Light is not to amass a larger and larger crowd to gather. It's to assemble, empower, and send a greater and greater army to send and to scatter. The scorecard is not just to fill a bigger room. And so um, our scorecard is not to make a bigger crowd, it's to make a deeper impact, amen? God's work in the world happens through his people and through the local church. And so this morning we're going to take a look at Moses, we're going to take a look at his calling, and as we do, I just want to press in a few words of encouragement into our church, some, some observations that we can make from the calling of Moses as we seek to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world, as we seek to be used by God and actually be the church and not just a crowd of Christian entertainment in our culture and in our day. And so I want to give you four words of encouragement. Grab your program. We've got fill in the blanks. You are welcome. Here is my first word of encouragement, church. My first word of encouragement is this. Don't look past your preparation. Don't look past your preparation. Last week when I wrapped up my sermon, Moses had just been rescued from the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter. He then goes on to be raised in Pharaoh's court and his household. He's a member of the royal family. Moses, the Hebrew man, becomes a prince of Egypt. He is learning the Egyptian culture. He's being schooled in Egyptian systems and leadership from his adoptive grandfather, Pharaoh himself. Um, He's getting a PhD in all things Egyptian politics And then what happens is he grows up, about the age of 40, he observes some injustice and abuse that's happening to his people, the Hebrew people, at the hands of the Egyptian people. And look what happens in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses got a little bit ahead of a God. He had not gone through his season of preparation. He had a right burden to remedy the injustice of his people, but he had a wrong reaction. The unjust violence against unjust violence. And so so, um, Moses is feeling a burden, but he's not waiting on God's preparation. He's not yet matured to the place that he can be the leader of God's people. Verse 13. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Next seven verses talk about how he goes, and he meets a nice family in Midian, and he meets a nice gentleman that has some daughters, and he takes one of the daughters and has a, uh, a wife, with, becomes the, the husband of one of the daughters, becomes his wife, they have a child, and he lives in the land of Midian, and you go to chapter 3 and verse 1, and it says that Moses goes on to work for his father-in-law, tending sheep in the land of, of Midian through the wilderness. And so, 
Think about this for a second. For the first 40 years of his life, Moses grows up an Egyptian man. Second 40 years of his life, he's leading sheep along the edge of a desert. Now put yourself in the place of Moses in this moment. What is he thinking? He's thinking, God, how did I get here, right? I was a baby in a basket. Then I was a prince in Egypt. Then I was a fugitive on the run. Now I've been spending four decades watching sheep eat. What am I doing here? But from God's vantage point, Moses is going through the intense, thorough, customized training and preparation regimen for the explicit calling that God was going to place on his life. Think about that. Who better to negotiate uh, the freeing of the Egyptian uh, the slaves in Egypt than a guy who grew up in the royal family? Who better to lead God's people for 40 years through the desert than someone who's led sheep for 40 years in the very same desert, finding the watering holes, knowing how to navigate the enemies, knowing the safe places that are there. He was in a season of preparation. And City Lad, I want you to know that everything that has happened to you, every bit of your story, everything that's happened to you has been in part God preparing you for the work that he has for you. Your story is not an accident. We talked about this last week. God is always preparing you. And some of you right now might be in a season of preparation in your Midian. And I want you to know that God's sovereign hand is purposely preparing you. He is sharpening your character. He is developing your skill set. He's sharpening your understanding of the word of God. He is preparing you experientially for the calling that he has on you. And I want you to know that in your Midian, remember that obedience in the small things is the very preparation that prepares you for the greater calling that God has on your life. I meet guys all the time um, that approach me and they want to preach. And I think that's great. I like preachers. Chris and I want to raise up a whole army of preachers. We want to plant churches everywhere. We have guys that come up and say, hey, hey, I would love to preach. You know, if you need like a break sometime, I could preach in, in that pulpit and I could do that. And, uh, you know, I'm here to serve you guys. I would love to plant a church. And uh, my name's Nick, you know. And uh, we say, okay, Nick, uh, that's wonderful. That's what we're all about doing. So we'd like to encourage you to join a city group and make disciples in community and get known, get your body next to someone and start teaching to twos and threes. And then I'd like to introduce you to Sarah Butenbach and get you on a serve team. And you could come and stack some chairs and you could come and disciple some kids and you could come and join a team. And then, then we'll take some next steps. And guess what? They usually don't come back the next week. <laughs> God prepares us through a season of preparation. Jesus, God incarnate, comes to earth for 30 years. He swings a hammer with this old man. He works a blue-collar job. He studies the scripture. He goes to the temple. He's being prepared for the public ministry that God had for him. Moses, after being um, um, royalty in Egypt, then goes for four decades and works a blue-collar job in a one-stop light town because God was preparing him through obedience in the small things for the thing that he was calling him to, the liberation of God's people. So let me just speak in, especially, especially young people. This applies to all ages, but I just want to speak to the high schoolers, junior high, college, young adults. Listen to me right now. Right now, you are in a season of preparation, okay? And the time that you spend in your Bible, the little yeses that you say to God, the little no's that you say to sin, the little temptations that you battle, the time when you could cheat on your test and no one is looking and no one would know and you found a way around the assignment and you know that you would never get caught and yet you choose to honor God. God is preparing you. He is strengthening your character and preparing you. You're in a season of preparation. So don't overlook obedience in, in the small things. 
I can't tell you how many Friday nights as a college student I spent in my dorm reading my NIV study Bible, the first Bible I ever got when my friends were out partying, and it sucked at the time. I wanted to have a social life, but I wanted to walk with God, and I'm going to read my Bible because that's what I'm going to do tonight, and God was preparing me. I did not know what God had for me. And some of you are walking through a trial. You feel like you're waiting on direction from God. Let me say, God has not forgotten you. He is preparing you. And there might be some of you in the room who are in year 39 of your Midian. You've been in a season of preparation for a while, and in year 39, you're getting ready to give up. And you're starting to lose hope. But let the story of Moses remind you that God loves you too much to short-circuit your preparation. God is seasoning you. God is preparing you. How old was Moses when he received his call from God? Anyone know? 80. He was 80 years old. That's old. That's like Velcro shoes driving a Buick old. Okay? And yet in that season, Moses receives a fresh calling from God. And so, uh, gray-haired folks in the room, can I just say it's not too late to receive a fresh calling and anointing on your life, that these are the most strategic years of your life. God has prepared you for this moment with wisdom, with experience. We need you as a church. We need you as a young church. We need you as a multiplying disciple-making church. God is preparing you. And so my first encouragement, church, don't overlook the preparation. Moses got a little excited. He felt a burden and he wanted to jump, and yet he had to walk through some stuff. So as we think about God using us, God calling us, what does God have for me? Don't look past your preparation. God is preparing you right now for the ministry that he has for you. My second encouragement is this. Tell God, start telling God, here I am. Here I am. Put that up, Kathy. I'm waiting for you, girl. There we go. Tell God, here I am. We need to make ourselves available to God. Um, Let me just show you. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Okay, now Moses, who is keeping the flock, so he's in a season of preparation. He's going about his everyday experience, keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, or in a flame of fire, out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw him, saw that he turned aside to see God, to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Let me stop right there. Don't we all wish God would just speak to us out of a burning bush? Haven't we? Can we just be honest? It's safe company. I've thought it. If the Lord would just tell me what he has for my life and what he wants to do, then I would walk in obedience no matter the cost. I would follow him to whatever if he would just tell me what to do, right? All the single folks are like, amen, I've been praying that he would just tell me who that girl is, who that guy is. If God would just speak to us, we all have that moment, but let me just tell you something. You need to understand the advantage that you have over Moses because of our place in redemptive history, okay? We need to understand our Bible from cover to cover. Moses in Exodus experienced an external manifestation of the presence of God. You, Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, you have an internal indwelling of the presence of God. You with me? Our access to the voice of God is more clear, more direct, more convenient than it ever was for Moses. Don't be jealous of Moses, He didn't even have the Bible. Brother had to write it. (laughs) He wrote the first five. He didn't have nothing to work from. 
He had to go to a mountain and hear from a bush. Okay, you got to know your place in history. Someone say, know your place. Know your place. You got to know your place. As a spirit-filled follower of Jesus, you don't need a bush because you got a Bible. God speaks through his Bible and God speaks through his spirit. And for the Christian, we don't need a burning bush because we have the Bible of God and we have the spirit of God who speaks to us. And so the question is no longer, is God speaking? The question for us becomes, am I listening? See, when there's a communication problem between us and God, it's rarely, it's never because God is not speaking. It's always because the Christian is not listening. And so we don't need a burning bush. We can hear straight from God. Now, single dudes, ladies, let us have a moment for just a second. Let me just give one little caveat as we talk about hearing the voice of God. Um, Single dudes, you cannot go to a girl who is out of your league and tell her that God told you to marry her, okay? Some of y'all have tried to play that. Some of you are sitting next to a wife, and that's the only reason you got her, Steve. I know you played that card, Um, But listen, for the guys who haven't done that, you can't say that, okay? That's not what I'm saying, so don't twist my words here. What I am saying is that we hear from God in the Bible and through the Spirit. And so um, Moses hears from the Spirit of God speaking through the bush. Now look at the second half of verse 4. Moses, Moses, he said, and he said, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Scan the page down to verse 10. He says, well, then I'm sending you. Here I am is followed with I am sending you. I wonder if God isn't sometimes speaking a more specific calling onto some of our lives, but we just don't hear it because we never turn and say, Lord, here I am. Just a posture of saying, God, um, I'm available to you, and it's your program, not mine, so you write the script. Listen, it's your agenda. It's not my agenda. It's your plan. It's not my plan. It's your life. It's not my life. I steward my time, I steward my resources, I steward my abilities, I steward my weaknesses, and they all belong to you. And so, Lord, here I am. What do you want? I want us to be a church filled with people with the posture that says, Lord, here I am. I am available to you. That's what it means to be a Christian and to walk with him, to give yourself to God who has given his son to you, Lord, here I am. But the scary thing about that prayer is that here I am is most often followed by the command that I'm sending you. Here I am is most often followed by the command that I am sending you. That's a scary prayer to pray. I remember a few years ago, I started to get excited about this idea called church planting, and I started to have a burden for more gospel-centered churches in our city that are not just preaching moralism, that are not just preaching to-do lists, that do not just have clever programs, but herald the word of God, hold up Jesus Christ as exalted Savior Christ, Lord King, and, and answer for all of our problems in the world. And I'm praying, God, do something in our city. Call some really clever, amazing guys to plant some churches that I can go and work for. Like, I just want to be a part of a movement like that, so call somebody. You know, God starts to burden my heart. They hear the cries of our city. I think we need Jesus, and there's great churches in our city, but we need a hundred more in our city. And I start to pray for that, and God burdens my heart. And he didn't answer, and then I said, here I am. And he said, I'm sending you. And I said, shoot! Oh! who is crazy and maybe just stupid enough to help me do this? So I called Chris. I said, Chris. (laughs) He said, I'm in. I said, oh, no, now he's in. They're moving to Omaha. We actually got to do this thing. So often the here I am, Lord, is followed with the voice that I'm sending you. Did you know God usually uses our burdens to actually give birth to our callings? Well, how do I? You talk about the Spirit of God in the Bible. Well, read your Bible. That's how God speaks 
How do you know your unique calling? Well, let me ask you, what burdens has God placed in your heart? Sometimes there will be a need in the world or a need in our city that seems to bother you more than it does other people. Most often, it's those cries that become our callings. Some of you might say, why is nobody doing anything about North Omaha? And no one seems to care about the cycles of fatherlessness and poverty and crime. Just tell God, here I am. He'll say, I'm sending you. He'll use our burdens to establish our calling. By the way, if that's you, next week we're going to have a teammates volunteer, volunteer sign-up guy in the very back. You can plug in. We're going to give you some tools to actually mentor a youth in our city that may not have access to a stable family and a positive voice and a Christ-centered influence. I'm just going to say that. Some of you might be saying, um, why doesn't God do something for the thousands of refugees in our city? Everyone says, let's go to the nations. And I'm crying out, the nations are coming here. Tell the Lord, here I am. And say, I'm sending you. You may say, well, what about the thousands of babies that, that are lost before their voice can even be heard in our city? Tell the Lord, well, here I am. You say, well, I'm sending you. What about the moral fabric of the next generation that's just unraveling and unwinding and, and spiraling out of control more than any generation in history? Just tell the Lord, here I am. We'll say, I'm sending you. I'll hook you up with Alex Marquez. We'll get you plugged in with some high school kids from Central, North, Benson, any of our youth students. It doesn't doesn't matter what it is, but sometimes that calling in your heart or that cry that you hear in your heart will lead to your calling. And so listen, I want us to be a church that's just available to God. We're not looking past our preparation. We're faithful in the small things, and yet we say, Lord, here I am. This could be your 40 and midi, and I don't know, but my heart posture towards you is one of listening and availability. Here's my third word of encouragement. Embrace your identity, not your insecurities. Embrace your identity, not your insecurities. I would say that one of the things that holds us back from walking into the calling that God has placed in our lives is not knowing what that calling is. It's that once we start to actually play that out in our brains, we become crippled with all these insecurities and inabilities and inadequacies in, our he- in ourself. This is what happened for Moses. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. As soon as he hears the call from God on his life, chapter 10 God says, come and I will send you, Pharaoh, to, um, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is where it gets very real for me. I ask this question all the time. Who am I? Maybe you feel that way. God puts a calling on your heart, a burden on your heart. Something that he would have you move into in the very first question that you start to think is, is who am I to act on behalf of God? Who am I to speak on behalf of God? Who am I to lead on behalf of God? That's the first question that Moses asks. Who am I? And I think that Moses is likely starting to answer that question in his own head before God can even answer. Who am I? I'm a murderer. I killed a dude and buried him in the sand, okay? Uh, Who am I? I'm a failure and a disappointment. I disappointed my biological family that in good faith put me in that basket, and I had every opportunity in the world to come through for them, but I disappointed them. I'm a disappointment to my adopted family, whom I betrayed and then, you know, jumped ship and went away for four decades. Who am I? I'm unqualified. I'm not an international dignitary. I don't negotiate the trade of slaves and hostages. I wear my name on my shirt and steel-toed boots every day and take a thermos to work. For four decades, I've been a blue-collar guy in the wilderness, Who am I? What are those questions that come to mind for you? Who am I? I'm a high school dropout. I'm a former addict. I'm a nobody. I'm the socially awkward person that never fits in. I'm the person who didn't go to Bible school, and I feel insecure because I don't know chapter and verses of my Bible. Who am I? 
I'm the guy who blew it. I'm the girl who can never get together. I'm the, I'm the guy who takes one step forward and two steps back. I can't even get myself to the 8 a.m. service, you know? I'm just... <laughs> who am I? But look at God's response <clears throat> in verses 11 and 12. Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12. But he's, he said, But I will be with you. And he goes on, who am I? I will be with you. I love that God doesn't even answer his question. He just skirts it as to say, Moses, this ain't about you. The way I work in the world is through my people. Who am I? I don't know, but I'm God and I'm with you, okay? His identity comes not from his insecurities, but from who God says he is. And listen to me. If you are a child of God, the truest thing about you is not your past performance, what you have achieved. It's what you have received and what God says about you. And he says you are a child of God. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. You are the temple of God. You are the very dwelling place of God on earth. You are God's ambassadors to the world. You are God's called and anointed servant. You are God's hands and feet in this world. That's who you are. We are who God says we are. Your identity comes from God. Moses, this ain't about you, bro. I hate to burst your bubble, but get over yourself. I'm going with you. Okay, so Moses works through his identity issue. Okay, I'm yours. And yet, he's got one more obstacle to wrestle with, and that's his own insecurity. Chapter 4 goes on to tell him, um, God goes on to tell him, okay, here's the plan. I'm going to give you the staff. You're going to do some miracles. He's going to say no at first, but I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to work through you, and I'm going to go before you, and I'm going to help you, and we're going to do this stuff. But then Moses pumps the brakes when we get to chapter 4 and verse 10, and God says, you're going to speak to Moses. Speak to Pharaoh, sorry. Moses says, whoa, 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 whoa. Look at verse 10. Look at chapter 4 and verse 10. Chapter 4 and verse 10. And Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord. I like to think that that's how he said it. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. That's funny. Can we just acknowledge that? Lord, I never used to talk good, and in the last three minutes since we've been having this discussion, I still ain't talking no good, right? Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. It's one thing to understand your identity. It's another thing to actually feel confident in your capabilities. Do you know what I mean? It's one thing to get a pump-up speech and say, God is with me, and I'm going to go do this thing. But then you got to actually get there and do it. And you're, you're left with the question, how? How am I going to do that? Chris and I talk about this all the time. So a couple years ago, we have this crazy idea. We plant a church, and we start to do it. And a couple people show up, and you know, Share the preaching. You got three city groups. You got a, a budget of $120,000. You've got three people on staff. And you think, okay, this is like hard, but you know, I think we can, we can do this. And then you blink, and all of a sudden, you got four churches in this network family of churches, and thousands of people, and millions of dollars, and, and buildings, and dozens of city groups. And Chris and I keep looking at each other saying, when do we call in the real pastors to hand this thing off to? For real. We're like, when do the guys that know what they're doing come in so we can maybe just get a buyout check and hand this thing off and go back to our plans with the Kia dealership that we've always been thinking about? Okay, it's one thing to show up in a bombed out building at 43rd and Nicholas, but then people show up and you got to do something. I'm saying, God, I'm not like the natural type A born leader. I didn't do student government. 
I didn't take a leadership class in college. I don't even like leadership books. In fact, I'm a slow reader. I don't know how to do I've never led an organization. I don't know how to counsel or counsel a, a failing marriage. I've been married for like 10 minutes, and all of a sudden I'm going, okay, it's one thing to be secure in my identity. It's another thing to have confidence in my capabilities. Lord, I'm not your man. I'm ready to tap out of this thing. Chris, you'll do great. I got to go. I'm not the man. Verse 11 and 12, what does God say? Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you shall speak. I will write the script for you. He's saying, Moses, who made you that way? Listen, we all have to come to the place where we honestly believe that God, if God left it out of you, then it's not necessary to fulfill the calling that's in you. Are you with me? The key to the antidote to insecurity is going back to the source. Who made you that way? If God wanted you to speak better, sorry, sweetheart, if God wanted you to speak better, you'd speak better. If God wanted you to be more type A, you'd be more type A. If God wanted you to have a different childhood, you would have had a different childhood. If God wanted you to be more, you'd be more. Have more, you'd have more. Be different, you'd be different. But God made you the way you are. Who put the mouth on your face, Moses? Very next verse, Moses says, hey, you're going to have to send someone else because I can't do it. And then it says the Lord's anger kindled against him. You want to tick God off, tell him what he can't do through you. The whole point to Moses is, Moses, get over yourself, bro. It sounds humble. It's not. It's prideful. Moses, this ain't about you. It's not about your insecurities or your capabilities, what you can do or what you can't do. Moses, I am God. I'm calling you. I'm with you. I'm going to enable you. In City Lot, I want you to know the same thing. If you belong to God, then God is the one who has given you your identity. God is the one who is with you. God is the one who is empowered, that empowers you. God is the one who is with you. And so church, I, d- I just want to say, embrace your identity, not your security. I want this to be more than a clever point, but the actual posture of our hearts. We wouldn't look past our preparation. We'd be constantly available to the Lord. Lord, here I am. And that we would say, okay, I'm not going to let my insecurities cripple my ministry. I'm going to swing for the fence. If God says go on, I'm going to trust him to show up. Last word of encouragement I have for you, verse four, or uh, number four, point number four. This one's deeply theological. You may need to look up some of these words. We're going to go into the real deep end now. This is is a complex thought, okay? Point four is this, do something, okay? The Greek for that, no, I'm just kidding. Just do something. English works, right? After Moses hears his calling and he works out his identity and his insecurities, he walks off that mountain. He still has a choice to make. He's going to go back to Jethro's house. Jethro didn't see what happened on the mountain. His wife didn't see what happened on the mountain. His kids didn't see what happened on the mountain. And there's nothing that's preventing him with just going back into the normal, back into the comfort, back into the predictable, back what he feels secure in. And yet, look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons, and he had them ride on a donkey and went. And went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. We're going to pick back up on the plot next week and how this all goes down and where it goes. That's next, next sermon in our series. But right now, I want us to just look at this turning point. He went. That was the biggest turning point. 
He's got some obstacles and challenges ahead of him, but none of that happens if he doesn't take his direction from going this way into the predictable, into the mundane, into the safe, into the comfortable, into what he knows, and saying, listen, I've heard from God. I don't know how it's all going to turn out, but I'm going to turn and I'm going to trust him. And he went. And so what I want to ask you is what needs to be your went? I know that's not grammatically correct. I ain't caring none, okay? What's your went? What needs to become your went? He went and started reading the Bible with his kids and praying with them at night, being a spiritual leader in his home. She went to the pregnancy counseling center and started to walk with some abortion-minded women to show them that there is a better way and there is hope and that she would help. He went and signed off her teammates and mentored a young man without a dad and broke a destructive cycle that had intoxicated an entire generation. He went next door and invited his friend to church. She went next door and shared the gospel with a classmate in the dorm that desperately needed to hear that she was valuable apart from what men said about her and treated her. He went and pushed all of his chips in and took that faith of, step of faith that he knew for his whole life God was calling him to make. When God speaks, we have to move. How many of us heard the voice of God and yet when we came off the mountain, we chose comfort over calling? But can you imagine the stories that Moses had at the end of his life because he went? We know the end of the story. It's not perfect. He didn't bat a thousand. He blew it in a lot of ways. But guess what? At the end of his life, he could look back and he got to witness a move of God part the Red Sea and walk through on dry land. He got to lead God's liberating work of God's people out of the hand of the most powerful man in the entire known world at the time. City Light, I want us to be a church filled with faith-filled people who are willing to say, I went. God said, and I went. I chose calling over comfort. Got to do something. I'll end with this. I actually lost some sleep last night thinking about this sermon. Because I thought, okay, Lord, I, I really, I feel this passion. I want to speak some faith into our church that we can change the world for Jesus. And God is still doing a work in our day. And yet I thought, man, if there's anything this church misses this morning, I don't want it to be this, okay? This doesn't discredit everything I just said, but here's the caveat at the end. I want you to know at the end of the day, Christianity is not about finding and fulfilling your calling. Christianity is about trusting the one who fulfilled his calling to seek and save the lost. You with me? Listen, I can lay this out before you, and I want to challenge our church, and I want us to be an active church, and I want us to be a church that's involved in our community into the very nation's ends of the earth, but we can't miss this point. The point is that we're all going to blow our calling, okay? Uh, Matthew 5 or 6, um, God says, Be holy as my heavenly Father is holy. So our first calling is to not sin. Be holy, and yet we all blow it. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. Don't you see? We can't live out the calling of God perfectly in our lives, and so Jesus comes, called by the Father, comes in our place, and is faithful to his calling, to live a sinless, righteous life before the Father, to reject insecurity and fear and doubt and the lies of the enemy, and to walk in integrity. He fulfills his calling to die a brutal, horrific, murderous, unjust consequence, death on the cross for your sins and for mine. And he follows his calling into a victorious, glorious resurrection so that we calling breakers, those who don't follow God in faithfulness, those who choose comfort over calling could be forgiven and made new in Jesus. He is the one who keeps his promises. He is the one who has perfectly followed the calling. And yet he is the one who empowers us by grace to actually live out and follow the God who calls us. I'm going to end with that. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the only one 
who has followed the perfect calling of the Father, and yet you did it in our place. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see a failure, he doesn't see a coward, he sees the courage of Jesus Christ and his righteousness imputed to sinners like us. And now Jesus. It's 2016, it's a long time since the burning bush, and yet you are the God, the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are the speaking God, you are the God who reveals yourself, you are the God who is still calling people to do your mission and ministry in the world. And so I ask for city life. God, in a season of growth, as the crowd gathers and grows larger, oh God, may the impact actually grow deeper. There's some people in the room that are battling with some real lies of the enemy that says, yeah, not you. Some folks in the room that maybe have felt a calling in their life for a very long time, and yet the voices of insecurity and doubt have spoken in. Lord, this morning, would the gospel truth break in? Would your voice be louder than the voice of doubt and insecurity to say, you are my child, I am with you. I wrote your story, and I'm going to use you, and you can move forward in faith. He went. She went. They went. That church went and was salt and light in a city on a hill. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.